Well, hello, friend. Welcome back to my podcast, Voice Notes from Textured. We're on episode 20, and it's the 30th of January, 2024. I cannot believe that a whole month has gone by since Christmas, and Mariah Carey was blasting out of my computer. Um, I've had an incredible week. There is so much happening within Textured. I've got a new website launching. I'm so deep into a project at the moment over at Viaducts, a new skyscraper. I've got some more meetings booked in. I've got some content planning it's all going on and I love when my brain is split into 10 different directions I just love that pace um but I really really enjoyed recording this episode with Mark from Straight Line Legal who is a solicitor and if you have a business or you're thinking about starting a business this episode is so informative about all the legalities surrounding interior design um, things you might not have uh, thought about before and it's also really good to think about what goes into a contract and just how important it is to be covered legally so get a notepad and pen for this one there's so much um, out there and if you have found this useful please do say hello to me on my instagram i love hearing from you but for now sit back and enjoy well, hello. <laughs> Welcome to Voice Notes from Textured. My name is Simon Mayhew. I'm an interior designer and the founder of Textured, a luxury interior design studio. I had an unconventional route into interior design after building a successful theatre agency in London. I just couldn't ignore my love for interiors, so I'm here to do it all again with Textured. Now, I'm a huge voice noter, and since we're friends now, each episode I'll be sending you a voice note, exploring different elements of interior design and the highs and lows of running a business. So, I'm about to press record. Are you ready? Hello, welcome back to my podcast, Voice Notes from Textured. Now, this one is going to be a good one. So I have an amazing guest with me, Mark from Straight Line Legal, and he has been my crutch probably for the last five months. And I was like, do you fancy doing a podcast? And he said, yes. So right now he's sitting on the screen opposite me, looking like Britney Spears with his microphone, which I am loving. Um, So Mark, hello. Hi, Simon. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good, thanks. Thank you for pointing out my uh, Britney Spears headset as well. I am jealous of the Britney Spears headset. Um, So obviously, I've used you for a lot of my legal things over the last couple of months. So just tell all the listeners about you, why you set up your company, and then we can talk about kind of how we work together on interior design specifically. Um, But tell everyone kind of a bit about you and why you went on your own and your journey. So, um, yes, thanks for the introduction. So as, uh, as you've said, my company is called Straight Line Legal. And uh, to give you a bit of background, I, I've been working um, in law since about 2010. And I've been working uh, as a commercial lawyer for over a decade now. I qualified as a solicitor in uh, 2014 after doing a two-year training contract and working as a paralegal at a firm called BLM, which is now part of Clyde & Co. Um, So basically, since then, I've been working as a commercial lawyer, uh, doing all sorts of different types of contentious and non-contentious work. By contentious, we mean uh, dispute resolution and litigation. So when two parties are unhappy about something and they're they're in a bit of a a dispute or a fight, and non-contentious is... Uh, contract drafting and and typically doing transactional work like um, business sales and that kind of thing. Um, so uh, I started Straight Line Legal last year, okay, uh, twenty twenty three in, in April twenty twenty three, and it's sort of been a long time coming. I, I felt that over the years I'd you know it was I got a, a lot of experience working at uh, BLM and Kennedy's, but but ultimately my heart was uh, wanting to help small businesses really to grow and develop and so straight line legal is sort of my vehicle to be able to do do that and so the ethos really is to offer businesses um trying to get off the ground or you know smes really any stage in their journey practical straightforward and affordable legal support
So straightforward. Sorry, I think you just cut off there. So straightforward legal advice. Is that what, is that what it was? Yes. Sorry. I'm out, yeah. It, basically, yeah. I, I was just saying that the, the, the ethos is to you know to give to give businesses uh, straightforward, practical, and, and affordable legal support. Hence why you did my crush. So just a bit, of, <laughs> yes. a, bit of back, so a bit of backstory. So we met because his lovely wife Laura did my photos for my website and then she said if you ever need anyone legal my husband does it i was like okay great i put put the card away and then literally like two months later i was like oh my god i need a solicitor oh my god mark i can speak to mark so that's how we connected because actually when you are a small business owner and i have two businesses legal obviously it's so important to make sure that you're covered and it's so important that like, what I like about you is you're so you're so personable and you're not a big, scary corporate uh, company where you have to go through 10 people to speak to a solicitor. We've had quite a good relationship. And I really like that because, you know, we've laughed over the, the months. But, you know, with like legalities, it can go over your people's heads sometimes. And it is quite scary. And with interior designers, like things can definitely happen and go wrong where you do need to be covered and you want to do things properly. So that's kind of why I gravitated towards you so much because you're very good with um, explaining it in a way that I will understand and that most people understand because I have not got any experience in law. So we have to be able to understand it. And then also we have to then pass that information over to our clients. So we have to make sure that we understand it so it gets passed over. So just going right to the beginning. So obviously you set up 2023, you're in the flow of things, lots of jobs are coming your way. But in terms of interior design specifically, can you explain the basics of contract law, which applies to interior design and how they differ from sort of normal business contracts? So if there are any interior designers out there that are looking to start their own practice or, or have a practice and then potentially their contracts could be stronger, what are sort of the basics of sort of contract law for interior designers? So um, first of all, appreciate the, uh, the compliments, Simon. Thank you, and you know it's it, it, it's something I <laughs> it is something I hear often from clients, and it's a big part of what I do. I really like to try to explain things as simply as possible because, as you said, a lot of, a lot of businesses they don't really want the legal waffle and the jargon. They just want to know, you know, here's my problem. How do I solve it, and how do I understand it? Yeah. So, um, but 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 going to your question, I think. Um, to, to cut it back to basics, really, a, a contract is basically just a written or, or a spoken agreement that is enforceable by law. And that means, you know, if someone breaks their part of the agreement, you can go to court and ask the court to um, make it right, basically. So to, typically, a contract would set out the responsibilities of each of the parties to the contract. And it's really a tool for addressing risk and managing liabilities. Um and so I think whether you're, you know, a small business or a big business working with huge commercial projects, I think in, in, in all of those circumstances, having a contract is a really useful tool. Um, and in terms, of, in terms of how they differ in, in the interior design industry, well, um, I'd, say, I'd say there's a couple of key areas. The first one is that there's something called um, the Construction Act, or we refer to it as the Construction Act. And it's something that you and I have talked about uh, quite a bit, Simon, over the past yeah. few weeks. Um, th there's a risk that when you're taking on uh, a project uh, on someone's property that that your contract will fall within the Construction Act, even if you're not doing any what you would call typical construction works. Yeah. Um, you may still be captured by it. And what that does is it, it requires that your contract has certain terms in it. Um, and I won't go into detail on what they are because yeah. it's quite extensive. It's a lot. It's but, a lot. Yeah. But, but broadly speaking, it just means that um, you know it, there's a right to be paid uh, in installments or, or periodical payments for longer projects. Um, there's a certain payment procedure that you'd have to follow, whereby you know you'd submit a payment notice to your client, and the client would sit would you know either agree it or they'd submit 
a, a notice to pay less. And then you have to follow a prescribed formula as to how you get paid and what rights you have to offset, etc. And whether you can challenge that, but the client can challenge that. Um, so uh, th- that's part of it. And then the other part is that as an interior designer, you have the right to suspend your services when you don't get paid in the prescribed format. Yeah. Uh, and the third key area is that you would um, be subject to adjudication under the Construction Act. So there's various different ways that parties can solve disputes um, uh, and various different avenues. One of them is adjudication, which involves a third party providing uh, basically an independent decision on your dispute. And if, if, your, if your contract is a construction contract, then basically you will be um, you'll be subject to that. So, so those are the sort of the key areas of, of the Construction Act. So you've got to bear in mind uh, that there is a risk as an interior designer that your contract uh, would fall within that, within the ambit of that act. Yeah. Uh, and then another avenue really uh, to look at is that because you're in a specific industry, there are industry norms and standards that you'd have to apply into your contract and also specific issues uh, relevant to just interior designers that you've got to address. And one of those, which we we might be able to talk about a little more, is um, whether you're acting as an agent or whether you're acting as a principal with regards to sourcing um, uh, furniture and equipment for your client. And so you, you need to ensure that you've addressed that in your contract so that the basis on which you're acting for your client is very, very clear. Yeah, because when I first started doing interior design and I I did understand the basics of an agent and a principal, I think one of the most confusing things is because the industry, everyone does something slightly different and everyone charges different. Some might put more into their fee, some some won't charge a sourcing fee and they'll put a, a markup on the furniture. Yeah. It's so varied. When you're starting out, it's really hard to know what to do. So I know with mm-hmm. you, I because I'm a member of the BIID, which I quite like to gravitate towards you know, the main body for interior designers. Mm-hmm. And even where I was yesterday, there are still some points that des- interior designers don't agree with all of the points that they set out. But it's a good starting point for you to pick and choose how you want to work. But I think the main thing that I've learned from you and speaking to other designers is just being transparent. And the client needs to know exactly kind of what's going on. And if you're going to act as an agent, they need to know kind of what if you're going to mark up and what your 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 um, commission is going to be. Um, so they're the main differences with commercial and uh, principal and agent, but it is so important that you know what the difference is because if you're not covered, if you don't understand what you're doing and a legal something happens legally, you're not protected. That that can open up a whole can of worms, and which is a bit scary. And that's with you why I wanted to be so clear with kind of what I'm doing, and it is a little bit of trial and error with how you structure your business. So you might find out that acting as an agent might not work for you and you actually just want to act as a principal and resell everything. So it just depends on, was that, did I explain that quite well? I feel like I did in my head. That was brilliant. Yeah, that was great. I was I was thinking as you went along, he's doing my job for me here quite I well. So. Well, that's your job, but you've, I know, I've, I have learned so much and it is, it is really important to have, to understand the difference and it is really important to have these in your, contracts so contract specific can you give like just just maybe like a few points of like crucial elements that should be in every interior design contract like like crucial things because i know like with me and you with my contract we took some things out we added some things in but what are the Mm -hmm. like you've got like five four or five examples of like crucial things that you must have in your in your contracts so um Yes, as you said, there's a lot of things you'd want to include probably if you were if you were doing a belt and braces approach. Yeah, uh, I think in terms of the critical things, so I would say, you know, as you said, the top five. So one would be your your scope of service and your deliverables. You know, that's got to be crystal clear because yeah. you don't want to have situations where 
you either get scope creep where your your client's asking for way more than they've paid for and you don't want to be under delivering either so get, getting that very set out very clearly it is crucial um on that on that point i, yeah. what I would say for any new interior designers listening, because this is you know, all stuff that I've been learning as well, sometimes the client might not know the scope of work. They might not know exactly. Some might not have used interior designers before. So some and, and some might not know what scope of work they want. So a, a project that I've just quoted for, I gave them my full scope of work in my fee proposal, and they came back and said, actually, we can do this section on our own. We can do this bit. So then I have to then go away and then sort of redo my proposal again. And that's why, so the scope of work is you've got to make sure from A to Z it's all covered, but that might change during the project. So if your deliverable is you're, you, you're only going to meet them twice. So in your fee proposal, you say, I'm going to meet you twice. And then you're in the in the middle of the project and you have to meet them six times you've got to make sure it's in your contract that you are billing them for their extra time so they can't turn around to you and say, well, I'm not paying that because that's not in your scope of work. You've got to be really clear with what what they're getting for their money and that's what the kind of scope of work is in the contract. Is that, that yeah. spectacular? <laughs> yeah, spot on, spot on. I know, yeah. I, yeah, because sometimes like, interior designers, they're sitting there and some, if they're starting out with the, right at the beginning of their career, a lot of courses don't teach what even what scope of work is in terms of running a, a, a practice. They A lot mm. of courses and a lot of uh, training centers, they just do, you know, what makes a good room, like colors and textures. They actually talk about running a business. Um, so what else? What else is a key element for a contract, do you think? Yeah, so no, really really good points, all good points there. And um, and, and I think, yeah, the, the clearer you can be. And that's a dialogue as well. You know, it's not, as you said, you can't just go in and say, I'm doing this, 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 and this for you. And that's, the, you know, pay, pay me X amount. Because you said a lot of the time it's about the client feeding back and saying, yeah, I can do this, or I don't want you to do that at all. That's that's just not something we need. So that, there'll be a toing and, toing and froing, and then the key is once you've got an agreement, get that set in writing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, so probably the the second point I'd say is this is, I suppose, aligned quite well with the you know the scope of work is what are you going to charge, and what are your payment terms, and how are you charging the client. So, you know, you could charge them in all sorts of different ways. And this is something, again, we discussed, you know, do you want to do it as a, a fixed fee? Do you want to do it as staged fees? Uh, are you doing it as hourly rate or a percentage of the overall project cost? These are all valid ways of charging, but you need to be crystal clear on what part of the project, it, it, you know, is subject to one particular set of billing uh, rates and and whether there's any different ones for different parts of the project. So, you know, sometimes we see stage projects and there is the provision to have hourly rates for additional work yeah. outside of any fixed quotes. So if, if you're going to do that, be very, very clear that you're going to do that and set out what your hourly rates are so there's no ambiguity whatsoever. Yeah, because that's what I do. I do it in stages because some projects can go on for a long period of time. So if you've got all your money up front at the beginning or 80% of it, that cash flow is harder to manage. If you're doing it in stages, from the people that I've spoken to, it just feels like a better, it's a cleaner way of, of charging in stages. And then when you go to your invoice and you have done additional hours, which is in your contract, and you'd always let them know, then you obviously add that on onto the invoice. Yes, Exactly. Yeah, and, and it's sometimes good, you know, not just from a, um, not just from a legal point of view, but commercially, if you're staging it, it helps with cash flow, and it also helps to sort of incentivize you to to move to the next stage as massive. well, in a way. Yeah, you know. massive, massive. Um, is there another key points you could think of that are really important? Yeah, I think we can do a few more. I think intellectual property. Uh, you know, um, we've touched on this again when we were drafting your contracts that's really crucial to set out in your contract who owns uh what rights and uh, making sure that you give a license to your client and so on and i suppose we could probably do we could do a whole bit on that because there's a lot of you know uh, uh relating to ip 
um, right for, for interior designers. Uh, the fourth point I'd probably say is get your um, liability and insurance provisions really clear. You know, you need to make sure that, you know, most people are going to need professional liability insurance working as an interior designer. Know what, know the scope of that, um, what's in cover, what's out of cover, know how much your indemnity limit is, and typically, um, you know, tie your liability limitation to the amount that you've got for insurance yeah. cover. So for those who don't know what I'm talking about when I say liability limitation, it just means that um, if you do something wrong when you're when you're performing your services and it causes the client a loss, then you may be liable to them legally. Uh, what we do with liability limitation clauses is that we set sensible and fair limits on your liability to the client in those situations. And what's a common... Um, way of doing this in in the interior design uh, field is to tie, and in, in many fields actually, but is to tie up your uh, financial cap with whatever your insurer would pay out in those circumstances so that the right. business is never out of pocket and your insurer will cover it. Okay. Uh, and then probably the last key point I would say, um, well, it's like picking and choosing your top five uh, songs or something here, but uh, not as interesting. I'd say the, the fifth one. <laughs> the fifth one would be particularly as we talk, touched on before for interior design contracts. Get your agent and principal issues sorted and made very very clear in your contract. Yeah. How, how will you be acting? Uh, and you know what are your limits limitations in scope and in liability in yeah. that role. Because actually that leads on to the kind of next question that I sent you is about how do contracts help manage client expectations and actually if, and also to maintain a healthy relationship. And if you have a really good contract in place, you know, that's going to help the relationship because you both, you both set out from the beginning what the terms are. I know of a designer, <coughs> excuse me, who uh, the contract was pretty loose and they quoted for a project, they quoted for furniture, and actually that client did a bit of research and realized they could have got it a whole lot cheaper and they lost the contract because actually that yeah. then opened up a can of worms. But the, what the client didn't understand is they didn't charge a particularly large sourcing fee. So they make their money on the sourcing fee for doing all of that work. But sometimes clients might not understand that bit because they don't understand what an interior designer sometimes does. So that's why it's really good to have it set out in your contract. So if there are, are any disputes, it's there in black and white and they've signed it. Oh, God's sake, make sure they sign it before you start a project. <laughs> no, that's a really good yes no, because, absolutely no, because it happens it happens you might um you might get you if you're just starting out you might get a bit carried away when i very first started and you just wanted projects and actually you're so eager to do it the contract the, the the client might not have sent back the contract yet but they want they know they're pressing you for they want to get going and before you know it two weeks have gone by you've done all these concepts you've not got a side contract so i would say like be so strict with yourself do not do anything until that contract has been signed unless you know that client so well and you can give them a few days grace for a goodwill, that's potentially okay. But at that point, I would then stop and say, look, I can't do any more until I have my contract. That's what I would. That's, I would. Ex that's brilliant advice. You know, that's what I advise every client when I draft a contract for them. I say, you know, we've done a, we've done a lot of the hard work here, but, but what you now need to do is make sure that you get it in front of the client, that they read it and they sign it before you do anything. <laughs> you know, that's your job now. <laughs> that was also connected to payments. If, you're, um, if your first stage of payment, like mine, is upfront, don't do any work until that has been paid because things do change and things do crop up. And, you know, like with the mortgage rates, for example, suddenly everyone was like, oh, God, my money isn't the same as what it was. And you could have done a couple of months work and not been paid, assuming you're going to be paid. Something could happen in life and then their circumstances change. So just make sure you just don't do anything until um, you've been paid in contracts, which then kind of leads me on to the next point. 
about disputes. So what if there is a dispute? What if someone has signed a contract? So the the interior designer has the signed contract back and you, they are, the client just hasn't paid their invoice and you're deep into the project. Um, Obviously I don't do, I don't go on to the next stage until that's been paid, but some don't operate like that. It's, you know, what happens if there is a dispute? What is the first port of call? So let's say I've got a massive dispute with a client. What is that port of call? What is what happens at that moment? So um, I just want to nip back to a point you made before, actually, because while you were speaking, it flagged something in my mind. Uh, people might be thinking, well, if the Construction Act applies to my to interior design contracts, why uh, you, you know why are you taking payment up front? So. The, the, the construction act doesn't apply to all uh, contracts particularly if you're if you're doing work on uh, a domestic property um, like, like a residential dwelling then the construction act typically won't apply so you can do whatever you want with payments um, upfront or hourly rates and you don't have to tip necessarily follow the construction act payment scheme right. so that's something I think we just I just wanted to add because um, it might have confused people from what we said earlier. Um, I think most, with but with with commercial interior design and residential interior design, my advice would be the second. I mean, most people do residential, and if they're, it's very rare. No, no, it's not very rare. You can do both, but for me, for example, I will make sure that if I get a, a really big commercial project before I even do that, I will be consulting with you regardless, because yeah. I know it's a different. A, diff- a whole different um but actually that could be a podcast for another time a difference between residential and commercial and um so we could maybe talk about that but in terms yes. of like, dispute if there is a problem yeah. between two people a client and an interior designer yeah. what what is the first what happens what's the very first thing that happens if you can't if you can't re- resolve it so let's take your example of a very simple one of the client hasn't paid um, we, I mean, you know, I think most of the disputes that I see are, you know, revolve around people not paying, or a lot of the disputes revolve around people not paying or not paying on yeah. time or being habitually late, for instance. Um, so what you really want is to make sure that your contract has provision for that uh, within it. So for, for payment, for instance, you'd want to make sure that there are incentives for the client to pay on time. You would you would stipulate things like uh, if they don't pay on time, you can charge interest. You would set out the rate of interest. Um, you know, obviously, you've got to balance that. A higher rate is is uh, is usually better for you. But if you put it too high, then it you know it might not be reasonable. Um, you could put a provision that if the client doesn't pay, you have the right to down tools. Uh, and possibly if they don't pay after a certain period after that, then you can simply terminate and walk away from the agreement and keep what you've got. Um, you can also, of course, if, you, if you've been very clear in your scope of work and you've been very, very clear in your fees, which we've talked about previously, then you should be able to um, pursue a claim at the co- at court for the unpaid amount. Now, we don't typically want to jump straight to going to court. So no. that's why in the contract we have you know, various dispute resolution mechanisms. And some some of the, you know, dispute resolution mechanisms we might include could be mediation, which is similar to adjudication that we talked about earlier. So that does also involve a third party helping the parties to, to, to come to some sort of agreement. Uh, it can typically be less expensive than other methods of dispute resolution, and therefore the courts quite like it. Um, both parties would pay their own costs, and the mediator doesn't, unlike a court, they won't make a determination of who's legally in the right and, you know, who's the winner, who's the loser and who owes who what, what, what money, etc. But they would help the parties to come together and try and find common ground and try and reach a deal. And what so, happens if the other person just doesn't communicate because you're basing on the fact that the other person wants to engage with you. What if they don't engage with you? What happens then? Well, typically if you have um, subject to what you've got in your contract, usually you'll be entitled to issue a claim at court if you've had no response. So what you'd need to do is uh, uh, enter into what we call the pre-action protocol process. 
And this is basically a process that the courts have set out that you have to follow before you issue a claim at court. And the idea of it is to give the parties a kind of you know last chance opportunity to settle their differences and get a deal done. If you don't get a deal done, then you would, uh, assuming your contract provides for it, be able to issue a claim at court and recover uh, that amount. Now, as I tell all of my clients, um, don't go to court unless you have to. <laughs> it can be a long process. It can cost you a lot of money. And at the end of the day, you know, this is heard by a judge who has quite a lot of discretion and, you know, may have had a bad day. And you're putting, you know, you're putting your case in their hands. So you might not get the result you want. So the idea is to be very clear in your contract. And part of legal risk management isn't just what it says in the contract. It's about your overall holistic view of the client. So you've got to be weighing your clients up, doing your due diligence. If you've got a feeling that this client doesn't have the funds to pay, you know, there are other things you could do. You could maybe get uh, guarantees if it's a a company you're working with from the director. Um, And obviously there's there's insurances you can take out if you want to, to protect against non-payment. Um, so there's, there's, there's other things that you can do beyond having a clear contract. You've just got to really weigh up what you think those risks are with each particular client ahead of time. Okay. It's a scary one, isn't it? Because I had a bit of a thing at the moment. or well, not a bit of a thing. I uh, ordered <laughs> a, a product from a supplier. Um, it's a bespoke item that we had to measure for. That person... That trade just could cut all communication and we have given them half a deposit. So they have half of the money. They have just cut communication um, and they've sort of said that it's personal issues. There's a lot going on in within their, their personal life, which obviously I am definitely sympathetic to. However, they won't return the deposit and they've just cut communication. Um, and then when you go down that thing of like, if you don't come back to me, we're going to have to obviously take this to court. And then you get a little bit of communication again, and they go quiet for ages. That's just quite difficult because as the interior designer, you feel so responsible because it's your client's money and, and, the, and the client is looking on at you. They're like, well, you've given my money to somebody. But, you know, like I said to the client, there's not much we can do. There's not much I can do unless we actually go to court. And, you know, I've applied a bit of pressure with my experience and they've agreed to pay at the end of the month, but I'm not holding my breath. And then I have to go, right, well, if they don't pay, you know, what are my actual options? I'll probably be knocking on your door again soon. I'm like, Mark, (laughs) (laughs) we have a problem. But, you know, it's not it's yeah. not for huge amounts of money, so it's probably not worth going to court. So then, so as the designer, you get in a very difficult situation because it's the client's money; it's not your money. So it's, I guess it's then is it is would it be the client's decision on what they want to do if they want to let it go or pursue, or is it because I'm not because I act as an agent, I wouldn't take them to court, would I? It'd be the client because it's the client's money; it's the client's contract between that client's person contract. and the contractor. So, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah then, absolutely right. But even though the the even though the interior designer feels responsible, it's not my responsibility. It's whether the the client wants to do it or not, and that's where it gets a little bit tricky and a little bit scary for most designers who work on their own. So we'll see what happens with this. See what happens with it. But he better pay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, you know, again, very common situation, and I, I will say that when you get into those sticky situations um, and this isn't simply me selling my services this is this is just an observation that i've noticed but no sell away i've i've had (laughs) (laughs) i've had a lot of situations where clients have you know reached a dead end or a brick wall however you call it with the other party and they're just not getting anywhere and they've instructed me to send a letter and sometimes just seeing a, a letter from a lawyer you know, it, it feels very formal and it, it gives you the party an indication that you're not messing around and that yeah. you are going to take things seriously and that you will pursue it all the way legally if you have to. And sometimes that one letter has been enough. I had a case recently, which was not an interior design case. It was a, a client who um, had had 
tried to give notice to get out of a um, basically a, a license. It was it was sort of they, they'd leased an area of a building, but it, rather than being a formal lease, it was just a license, which just means a personal contract. Um, and they'd given notice, but because they'd done it verbally, um, the, the other party had said. Yeah, that's fine. You know, you can leave. You can leave on that date. And then when they came to leave, they said, oh, we haven't got your, your notice in writing, so you're rolling over to another fixed year." <laughs> um, I know. So it was a it was a real pain and 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 very you know underhanded from the other party, really. So they tried everything, and they were you know pulling the hair out because they couldn't afford to, to be stuck there for another year. They instructed me. I wrote one letter. Um, and within two weeks, they'd accepted f- in full what we proposed, and they terminated the next but month. My, but my advice on that, and obviously with my previous, obviously being an agent before yeah. this, with dealing with actors and actors' contracts and commissions, my only advice on that is the second, well, I don't know how you feel about this, but the second yeah. you employ a solicitor to go down that road, you have to, you have to, take it to the end because there is no point even going into a solicitor if the other side continue to keep battling it just for me it just shows such a weak position if you then go oh hell i'm just gonna let, let it go i think once you end to go down that formal road my advice is to take if you feel that strongly about it like principle say to your principles and just go right to the end that's what i i that's what i think I think there's definitely merit in that. I think there's definitely merit in that approach. If, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to be, you don't want to have your bluff called, I suppose, is what you're saying. And I get that. Yeah. And it can reflect on your brand and perhaps perhaps your integrity. Maybe if you've, you know, if you've pushed hard and then just completely back out. But on the flip side, I'd say that some disputes financially aren't worth going all the way to trial just simply because, they're a low value yeah. or because or because they're so complex that the costs are going to outweigh the amount you'll get back. Yeah. So in those situations, I do say to clients, you know, look, there's enough here for for it to be quite persuasive. It doesn't mean they'll accept it, but you could pay, you know, we'll cap your fees at this amount and let's see how far we get. And sometimes that's enough to get an offer maybe of half of what you're due or or you know a percentage that's, that, that the client's happy with and they can then say okay i've got a decision to make do i accept this offer and and cut my losses and move on or do i push it all the way so but sometimes by taking that first step you can give a client options yeah to say well you know how do i want to approach this so i i agree, I agree with you to an extent that you you know you've got to be prepared to at least invest a little bit in this if you're going to go to a lawyer you've got to you know you've got to take time to get all documents yes yeah. and you've got to feel really strongly you've got to think and obviously you you know if if you you sit down with a lawyer and they know what they're doing they will say at the beginning i think this is a goer or i think this is a load of rubbish and then yeah. that also informs your decision of how you're going to approach it yeah and every person will come into it a little bit differently. Me being me as a person, if I feel strongly about something, oh my god, I can't, I just can't let it go because I do. I'm very, I just there's right and wrong, isn't there? And some people yes. just try and get away with it, and I just don't, I don't like that. Um, but you, you've got to know where to cut your losses and actually not invest any more energy because it is also when you go down that road. It's really, it takes a lot on your mind. Like it's very heavy. Mm. You take on, you've got to think about those implications as well because it do, it can take a long time to go through courts and, and even to have constant phone conversations about it. And if you've got children or a family or a busy job, that's a lot of extra stuff on your mind. You've got to weigh up, is it actually worth it? Um, Absolutely. Very that's interesting. Yeah. very interesting. But it's good. So with you, I'm assuming if, if an interior designer out there does have a problem what you do is you will go i will charge this amount to help you with that problem this is my scope of work and mm-hmm. it's kind of i'm kind of there's no job too small i'm assuming so it could be from a letter or it can be that kind absolutely. of absolutely yeah cool yeah I, I i do you know i think that's absolutely right and and if if sometimes i used to i used to, to say to a lot of my clients look I'm happy to do you a strongly worded letter. And people used to joke that I love strongly, strongly worded letters. But honestly, yeah. the value of a strongly worded letter from a, a lawyer 
can't be underestimated and sometimes no. that is enough to, to do it yeah. and you know we'll price we'll scope it out so it will just be that we'll do a review we'll do a letter and sometimes that gets a really good result and we can draw a yeah. line under it fab okay moving on to um i don't think actually i didn't put this in the questions to you but it's quite an interesting topic is is chat gbt and mm-hmm. i've talked about this before now chat gbt does some legal things doesn't it but it's is it, it? Are you worried about ChatGPT? Because it's not uh, doesn't cover everything. It's quite a dangerous thing, isn't it? Because you're at your trusting AI to give you legal terms and advice, and people are just copying these clauses. I mean, how yep. can, how trusted can they be? Because I guess I'm assuming it's depending on what you're putting in the box as well. It depends on what you're what you're inputting. So, course, are you yeah. are you worried about AI and contracts and legal and? Um, uh, my view on it, I have quite strong views on it. I, I'm doing a lot of work at the moment. I've just contributed to an article on copyright in AI, and I'm and I'm um, do, doing a lot around that subject. And I think it's, I think AI is an incredible tool. I think it's fantastic. I love it. I use it for a lot of things that I do to assist me, to make it faster, to make it more efficient. But I will never use it to either get legal advice or research or to draft something that's legal because it is dangerous. And there have been quite a few cases, some over here, some in the US, where even accomplished lawyers have walked into a courtroom and have quoted cases to a judge which are just fabricated, completely made up. Uh, by ChatGPT, and it's now they've now included a, a section on sources, so you can check the sources after it's given you some information, which I think is a great idea to to make it more transparent. But yeah, th- there was people, you know, lawyers and litigants in person just quoting completely made up cases which either never existed or did not uh, say the thing that they that ChatGPT told them it did and so you are risking a lot i think by relying entirely on chat gpt if you you know if you're using it to draft contracts for instance because it doesn't, um, when, when, it, when it does draft a contract because i did try it once ages ago to do something legal it does it put a dis- disclaimer on it saying that it yeah. does does it add that this isn't oh it does do yeah. that it says basically you know we're, an, we're i'm a robot and i can't tell you what the law is go and speak to a lawyer and, yeah, and okay. I think that's the right thing to do, you know. Yeah, but I'll I tell you, I, I've tested this. I've asked it. I've I play with it. I play with AI. You might have seen my latest videos. I've been messing with doing AI generated videos. I love it. I think it's fascinating. But um, I, t- I tested it, and I t- I had a template, a industry standard template, and I asked it to draft me. I get much input as I could. Draft me something along that lines, the lines of that template. And what it came back with was was astonishing in that it got a good chunk of the contract and and it it really shocked me i thought this is actually impressive it's genuinely impressive but it it, it misconstrued a few key legal points and one of the clauses was so wrong that it would be dangerous to have included it in a contract yeah I so think, but yeah. I, was, I was impressed that it got you know the bulk of it but there was there was some critical points which it just can't grasp as a, as a machine I- from a legal perspective, I think what I've used it for, and it's been so, honestly, I feel like a, this is a whole other episode and I'll tell you over the, if you have a drink one day, but I've used ChatGBT as a, not a lawyer's letter. I haven't pretended to be a lawyer, but mm-hmm. you can write a, a strongly worded email in that kind of format and style. And I think that's what it's brilliant for. If yes. you put in your, you write the email of your, your dispute and you can say, write me a strongly worded email to this client because of this reason. And the way it writes, it does make it sound very formal. Mm-hmm. I think when you're at the, that's kind of, I would probably use it for more stuff like that because not everyone is able to write an email like that. Yeah, and actually, it's very good tool for that. It's it's a cracking tool for things like that for for make for creating content. Well, and, you make know, it in a tone, and you can change the tone, and it yeah. you know make it more you know a very formal. We're edging towards a, you know a more of a legal direction. It, yeah. it won't start quoting legal stuff, but the way it's worded, and it and it and actually, 
I would say three or four times I've had to use <clears throat> that in my other business. Yeah. That dispute has then been resolved instantly, instantly. Yeah. So even yeah. before you get to the lawyer's letter. So it is good to explore that for that, you know, that tool is there. Um, yeah, so no, sort of I, agree. Coming, I agree. Yeah. So sort of coming towards like the end. So what is there any sort of legal advice for emerging designers out there or kind of designers that have been in practice for a couple of years around contracts? So obviously we talked about the things that they should have it in, but is there any sort of final advice for emerging designers of what they need to do? Um, I suppose my advice would be um, if, you know, get a contract is, is the first one. Yeah. So, you know, and I think it's, if I recall, I think the BIID, if you remember, it's a requirement that you have a contract that you enter yeah. into a written contract with your clients. And that's yeah. just good. That's just good practice, you know, all yeah. around. So yeah. get a written contract. Um, now, my, my next bit of advice will not be a surprise, but, you know, get a lawyer to draft it if you can. Yeah. Um, or, or if but on that quickly, the yep. reason why I think it's good to get a, a lawyer to draft your own contract is because, as an example, the BID contract for residential, it, you know, it's very thorough, and there's a lot, a lot in there, and they themselves have admitted that there's quite a lot in there. Mm-hmm. But you have to make sure the client understands everything they're reading, the designer understands everything they're reading, and also so many practices work slightly differently. So that's kind of why I liked coming to you and said, look, I want to do things properly. I want to you know, be in line with the BAID, but I want to draft it in sort of for, for, for my business. So I think yep. that's why it's really important to get a lawyer to do it because you you can sort of tailor it and bespoke it to your business, but keeping the main standard practices. Yes, absolutely. And and that's a really good point. I think, you know, there's a couple of points there. The first one is that a contract, in my view, is an extension of your brand. It's, you know, if you see someone with a sloppy contract or one that doesn't make sense, um, you know, it's a reflection on your brand. Yeah. And, and so when you, if, if you go to someone that has a really clean contract that you can understand, that looks nice, that's all part and parcel of a big you know, project offering, I think it definitely gives a, a, a better impression to the client. Yeah. But the other point that you made is the BIID templates. That I think if you were to go ahead and do nothing else other than agree to them, you would be in a pretty good position legally. I think, you know, they're very comprehensive. They cover all bases. Um, The the only downside, which is what you've reflected on, is they are vast documents. And there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of issues which you could trip up on or get, you know, become overcomplicated or which could confuse your client. I think if you don't know what you're doing. It's almost like they to sign it. (laughs) It's like, so they understand that they know what they're signing. Yeah. but it is definitely a minefield. And obviously, me and you could probably talk about this for hours. There's so many different things. And maybe potentially later on in the year, we can maybe do another one and and, and, and steer it towards somewhere else. But t- where are you at with this? So did you, did you listen to the legal hour? Are you going to try and do something like this in the future? So what's next for you? So for any listeners, obviously, I will, I'll put your social media um, into the blob, blob, blurb. Um, <laughs> so they can follow you and but have you got anything upcoming that they can be involved with i know you sort of talked about doing like a legal hour online where they can ask you questions and it's more like a quick chat are you gonna do that like what's your what's coming up so yes there are a few things coming up uh, apologies i keep sniffling i should probably should have said this at the beginning but i'm full of a cold so if i sound horrible and croaky it's, well. it's not how i normally speak um um I'm just a slight disease at the moment. Um, so, what's, <laughs> what's, <laughs> so, so what's coming up? Um, yes, Simon, that is a really good point. I'm still, that's still very much in the works, but my idea is to do a sort of legal advice drop-in clinic or a legal hour or something like that, where I go online um, for an hour. I'm, you know, I give notice of the time and people can join, ask any questions they want, get some guidance and input. And it's going to be, the idea is that it's free, basically. And uh, obviously, if there's anything you need to talk about in more detail, we could have a separate chat. But yeah. the idea is to just give that, sort of open that to more people, to more businesses who, because I think there's a real need for it. There's a real need for just somewhere you can go to, you know, to, to get clarity, have a, a wider view of a situation, actually know what your legal rights might be. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a really, a really good example. It's like if you do this legal hour, and I've got this the, the, the supplier who's gone able hasn't replied to me. They've got 500 quid of my money. I could be like, Mark, what, what would you recommend to do right now? And you could just be like, da, 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 da. So it's yes. stuff, like, stuff like that. Just really quick, easy. No one's asking. No one's going to be asking you to like write their whole contract in there. But it's more like just advice they might have found. But I really think you should do it. I really yeah. think you need to do that. I think it's such a good. I think it's such a good idea. It's uh, it's a it's a you know it's something that's again it's been in the works for a while. But I I am excited to do it. I just need yeah. to find the right format and and the right and the right time to launch it and time. Let's do the things. Time. Children. Um, yeah, yeah. So and. and <laughs> And yeah, and the other thing is uh, that I may as well flag now is that uh, I'm in the process of uh, doing a separate branch of Straight Line Legal, which is going to produce template contracts for people who um, may get some use out of them. So the reason I do it is because there's certain industries which I see a lot of people going on the internet and cobbling together a contract and you know trying to do it themselves because they don't want to go and pay solicitor's fees for them to sit down and do it properly or perhaps they can't afford it because they're a really new business and so you know whilst my advice always is the best risk management tool is getting a solicitor on board there's no doubt about it but you know if you if that's not where you're at yet then definitely don't cobble it together on your own you know use a template which has been drafted by a lawyer who understands the the key terms for your industry and you can just tweak it as you need um so, so that's what I'm doing at the moment, and I think uh, there's going to be perhaps in the next month or two a few initial, uh, an initial release of the first ones that I'm going to going to put out there. Exciting. Well, I'm going to put all of your social media, your website, everything into the the blurb um, on Spotify. But I really enjoyed that, so thank you for coming on today. And then maybe in a couple of months' time, we'll do another one. We'll think of another subject to have a little chat about. Um, I don't know. I thought it was really, really good. So thanks no, for coming That's fantastic. On. There's there's so much more um, we could we could talk about, I think, isn't there? So yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, that I'm sure I'll be annoying you very soon. <laughs> <laughs> Look forward Thank to it. You. Cheers. Cheers, Simon. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It really means a lot. Now, I know it's a complete faff, but if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, it will really help other people find me. You can also say hello to me at my Instagram. That's at underscore textured underscore. Yes, that's a mouthful. And that's textured without the first E. Or get in touch with ideas for future episodes by emailing me at info at textured.studio. Thank you.